Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. This podcast is all about legislatures, the people in them, the policies, process, and politics that shape them. I'm your host, Ed Smith. College affordability isn't necessarily a new concern, but it's an ever-increasing one. It's really on the forefront of minds of parents and students across the country. That was Heather Carter, a former Arizona legislator who now serves as executive director of the Greater Phoenix Leadership, an organization of leading CEOs. She's one of my guests on this podcast, along with Andrew Smalley, an education policy expert at NCSL, and Kate Hoffman, the CEO and founder of Earn to Learn, an Arizona-based program aimed at helping students afford and complete college. College affordability poses a major challenge to families. The average net price of attending a public four-year institution, including living expenses, is nearly $20,000 a year. Smalley discusses the strategies for saving for college and avoiding burdensome student loan debt, particularly 529 plans that are a primary vehicle for families to save. Carter and Hoffman discuss how the Earn to Learn program has helped thousands of students in their state in efforts to turn it into a nationwide program. Here's our discussion, starting with Andrew Smalley from NCSL. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Ed. Well, we're talking today about the cost of college and efforts to make it more affordable for families. And the rising cost of college is in the media all the time. In fact, I read a story today about the University of Colorado and looking to increase its tuition. Can you talk about how drastic these price increases are? It's a well-covered story that over the past several decades, college costs have increased substantially. At most basic level, college tuition has grown about four to five times the rate of inflation over the past several decades. That's, of course, a substantial increase that has an impact on the ability of students to attend and complete college. It also calls into question the value of a degree and raises lots of issues around large sums of student loan debt that might be accrued while obtaining that degree. But on the cost side, it is important to note there are some caveats with that sort of top line number. Um, The first is that overall growth in tuition costs is most pronounced at private colleges and universities. These are schools where tuition and fees average about $40,000 a year. The elite private colleges are closer to $60,000 a year, but public institutions are substantially more affordable. The most expensive public four-year universities in most states are about $20,000 a year for in-state students. It's also important to note one of the reasons costs have gone up so much is because most colleges and universities are using a high-tuition, high-aid model where they are raising the sticker price of tuition but also raising the amount of financial aid that they're offering to certain students. The effect of this is that for low and middle income students, the net cost of attendance at public colleges and universities has been relatively flat over the past decade and a half or so. So that average net cost of attendance, which includes not just tuition, but housing, meals, books, it's roughly $20,000 a year a four-year public institution, and about 15000 a year at a two-year institution. Of course, 20000 and 15000 are not insignificant amounts of money, especially over the course of two to four years, for a student to pay or earn their degree or credential. 
So given that, what, what kind of options do parents and families have to save for college? The main tool for savings is 529 accounts, which are also known as qualified tuition plans or college savings plans. These are state-run tax-advantaged accounts that let savers pay for a beneficiary's qualified higher education expenses, including tuition, room and board, books, supplies, things like that. 529 plan can be used at pretty much any higher education institution that's recognized by the Department of Education. So you're not tied to one school or one state with the savings variety of 529. You can also use them at about 400 schools overseas and for some registered apprenticeship programs as well. There's also a relatively recent change at the federal level that allows them to be used to pay for private K-12 education, although the tax consequences at the state level uh, vary on that piece. But in terms of the college side, the use of 529s has grown dramatically in recent years. About 16 million Americans have a 529 account, and there's about $480 billion invested in them. That's about a 200% increase in the amount invested in these accounts over the past decade. And there's a good bit of research that tells us 529s are effective in boosting the number of students who are pursuing or attaining a post-secondary education. There was a study from Washington University that found students with a 529 account, even with a balance as low as $500, were three times more likely to enroll in college and four and a half times as likely to graduate than students without a 529 account. So there's a lot of evidence supporting these as an effective tool to save for college. Yeah, that certainly sounds like a pretty persuasive case for uh, encouraging their use. We're talking, of course, to our uh, usual audience, state legislators, state legislative staff, and others interested in state policy. And I wonder if you can talk about this, that, that angle of it, what states are doing, uh, either developing or encouraging the use of these 529 accounts. States have a variety of incentives, and particularly tax incentives, to complement the federal tax advantages of 529. So at least 37 states and Washington, D.C. offer a tax credit or a deduction for contributions to a 529. In three states, New Mexico, South Carolina, and West Virginia, you can actually get a deduction up to the full contribution amount that you make to a 529. All these state tax benefits are not insignificant. Brookings Institute did an analysis a few years ago looking at the incentives in 24 states and found that they were spending about $265 million a year on these tax incentives for 529. So that's definitely a strong incentive across those states. We've also seen in recent years, in addition to the tax advantages, states exploring creating initial deposit and seed programs for these um, 529 accounts. So Rhode Island provides a $100 deposit for each baby who's born or adopted in the state if their parent opens a 529 account within their first year of birth. About a dozen other states have followed that model in recent years. Colorado, Nebraska, Illinois have passed legislation on this just in the past few sessions. Most of these programs provide $50 to $100 in initial deposits when the account is opened within the first year of birth. The rationale really is to try to encourage those accounts being opened and funded in the first year of birth 
and giving the account time for compound interest to build and accrue as the child grows up. And then the last sort of area is building on that. Some states provide matches to contributions even over the course of a child's life. Colorado offers a matching grant of up to $500 per year for certain families that meet income requirements. Tennessee provides a match of up to $1,500 over the lifetime of a child for contributions. So there's a lot of state investment to encourage the use of these accounts, particularly around the tax savings component, as well as direct funding from states. Well, Andrew, thanks for filling us in on this background. It's very helpful. You take care. Thanks, Ed. You too. And I'll be right back after a short break with Heather Carter and Kate Hoffman to discuss the Earn to Learn program. Rely on state legislature's news on the NCSL website for the freshest takes on people, places, and policy. Find out what states are doing about the biggest issues of the day. And check out the Across the Aisle and My District features for compelling stories of bipartisanship and special places and events. Make SLN your daily go-to for all the hottest legislative topics and trends. Just click on the News tab on the NCSL website, www.ncsl.org. Kate, Heather, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. We're talking on this podcast today about programs that help families with the cost of college. And Kate, let me start with you. Can you talk about how Earn to Learn came to be and give us an overview of how your model aims to help students in college? My background is as a social entrepreneur and financial services professional. But first and foremost, I'm a mother of two. I had become increasingly aware that kids like mine wouldn't have the same opportunity I had to attend college and earn a degree. So a little over a decade ago, I began Earn to Learn with a simple proposition to make college possible for low and moderate income students. As we all have Noted over the past decade, the purchasing power of Pell Grants has significantly declined. Students have growing unmet financial needs like housing, books, fees, costs that are above and beyond just the cost of tuition. Earn to Learn isn't just another scholarship program. It's really, it really works differently. This is a matched savings program And what that means is every dollar that a participating student saves, they are actually qualifying for an eight dollars or an eight to one match. And those funds, the combination of the student savings coupled with that match can go towards not only addressing tuition, but also go towards addressing that unmet need that we just referenced in the form of housing, books, meal plans. And what we're really finding is That's where a lot of the borrowing is happening. In any given year, a student can save up to $500 to qualify for a maximum of $4,000 in additional financial assistance to help support the overall cost of attendance. And I think it's really important to stress that this isn't a giveaway. In addition to having some of their own financial skin in the game, Participating students also must complete financial capability training, financial wellness training, 
to learn really healthy money management habits. And I think those are skills that the participants of Earn to Learn can take with them long after they graduate and into their adulthood. We really are viewing Earn to Learn as being complementary to existing programs like Pell and other scholarships and grant aid, and really fulfilling the mission to help more students achieve those educational goals and training that they need to be successful. Heather, let me turn to you. You're, you're a former Arizona legislator. I wonder if you can talk about the concerns around affordability of post-secondary education and how you think Earn to Learn could help Arizonans deal with some of those challenges. Well, you know, college affordability isn't necessarily a new concern, but it's an ever-increasing one. And it's really on the forefront of minds of parents and students across the country. You know, over 42 million borrowers owe federal student loans. And that combined tuition debt totals over $1.7 trillion. Now, if you average that out, that's nearly $38,000 for every undergraduate borrower, but not every borrower takes out loans. So for some, it's really expensive to go to college and to take out these loans becomes an increasing financial burden that they will face once they graduate. And when students graduate with a large uh, financial loan debt, Many times they'll have to delay life milestones like buying a house or starting a business. And then when you're looking at starting college, just the cost associated with going to college and taking yourself perhaps out of the workforce or trying to do part-time work, it creates a burden for many people where they just don't even start college in the first place. So this program with Earn to Learn is really unique because it is one of the only programs out there that helps fill that gap with traditional financial aid. And it also gives participating students the academic coaching. I really want to dive into that, that piece of this because there is supports built into the Earn to Learn program that helps students navigate this sort of first-time territory. It also gives them access to employer apprenticeships and other supports that help them succeed. You know, but best of all, the program works. Because most earn-to-learn students graduate with little or no tuition debt. So it's a really holistic approach to earning your college degree. Kate, I was struck by the number of first-time college students in this program and the number of students who pursued STEM programs as a part of this program. And Was that part of the design or is, did that just happen? We knew that reducing financial burdens would create opportunities for underserved students, including those who were the first in their family to attend college. I'm really proud of the fact that nearly two-thirds of all Earn to Learn participants to date are first-generation college students. This is an amazing legacy that can positively impact the trajectory of a family for generations to come. You also asked about STEM, uh, and we know that some of the fastest growing areas of our economy involve STEM-related fields, and it's noteworthy that one in every two Earn to Learn participants is pursuing a STEM-related field, and I can share with you that employers are really, really excited uh, to see that in the participants of Earn to Learn. These students 
will graduate so well positioned to find a job and be successful in their chosen field after they graduate. Kate, let me stick with you a minute and talk about some of the early outcomes, kind of the stats that you're seeing coming out of the program. What kind of percentage? I think I think it was the, the overwhelming majority, but what are we really seeing in terms of results? You're in almost a decade now with this program. Sure. I'm really excited to share that the results of this program that has now been up and running for over a decade in Arizona, the results have been amazing. Nearly 80 to 85 percent of the earn to learn students graduate within six years, which compares very favorably to the national rate among similar students. And nearly 90% of earn to learn participants are meeting their monthly savings goal to earn that eight to one match that I mentioned earlier. And we're so proud that earn to learn is making college possible for underserved students and communities. And nearly 85% of our participants are students of color. Best of all, most earn to learn participants graduate with little to no student loan debt. Heather, let me ask you about the business community in connection with the work that you do now. And I wonder, what do you hear from employers? What are they looking for from students, both coming out of higher education, coming out of any kind of post-secondary program? Well, I think it's fair to say that employers are absolutely starved for the trained and ready workforce. We hear this every day. And that's one of the reasons why so many large employers like Raytheon or Roche and even others are partnering with Earn to Learn because they see the value in improving college affordability and getting access to these graduates is a step in the right direction for full employment. But it's even more than just providing financial support. Earn to Learn mentors these students in things that they don't necessarily receive in their day-to-day classes at the university or the community colleges. So they help them create professional business documents like their resume, sharpen their interview skills, dive into financial literacy skills. These are all things that are an added benefit to participating with Earn to Learn. And remember, I think another important piece to it is that Earn to Learn isn't only about university and community college education. Participants can also use these dollars to attend a trade school or a career and technical education program. We see an, um, an advancement of these certificate programs becoming more and more important in the workforce. And so these earn to learn dollars are really flexible. Ultimately, earn to learn's focus is to help students achieve post-secondary education they need, but we want to make sure that they have multiple paths open to them to be able to enter into the workforce and then ultimately build that uh, financial success for them ongoing. It's important, of course, for young people to get an education, be able to have these jobs, but it's also important for the community. And certainly legislators are concerned about uh, full employment, about people paying taxes and contributing to the community and that kind of thing. And and Heather, I wonder if you could comment a little bit about uh, how this sort of approach can help regions prosper uh, in Arizona and certainly for our listeners uh, in other states. Well, I don't think anybody will debate the strong link between education and the economy. But it's not just enough to have a great university and community college system. Students have to be able to access that system, and they need to be able to do so in every neighborhood, in every corner of the state, so that they can attend. Now, through you know the thousands of Arizona students that Earn to Learn has helped in the past decade, 
Earn to Learn has demonstrated that this model works and is breaking that cycle of college debt that follows too many students across the country. We believe that this model will be effective nationally, and in the weeks ahead, a bipartisan coalition of House and Senate lawmakers will be bringing this legislation forward to work at the federal level. And we're super excited to share the success that we've had in Arizona across the country. Kate, from your work with students in this program, what are some of the biggest takeaways lawmakers and staff in other states should know about today's college students? So I would say that every generation of students is different than the one that preceded it, but they are similar in important, in important ways. Today's students want to be successful and they know that some kind of post-secondary credential or training beyond high school is critical to their future. The key is they want to earn this post-secondary credential without being saddled with decades of student loan debt. And they are willing to work hard, save, and invest in their own success. When we launched Earn to Learn, the biggest objection that we got was that this program was too good to be true. And as more and more students enrolled and realized that this was a very real opportunity, we had siblings enrolling and parents enrolling. And it was really exciting to see the grassroots movement that happened with the Earn to Learn program. I could not be prouder of the Earn to Learn participants who prove their resolve and resilience every single day. As we get ready to wrap up, Kate, I wonder what's next for Earn to Learn. You're going into your second decade, and I wonder how this program will evolve and continue to serve students. Well, I'm really excited to share with you that we have been approached by over 25 states interested in replicating the model. That level of interest coming nationally has led to what I will refer to as a federal push to take the Earn to Learn model national. And we have drafted the Earn to Learn Act at the federal level, which has bipartisan sponsors in the House and the Senate, and will create an estimated 250,000 additional scholarship opportunities to support underserved students nationwide. This is not only a matter of expanding edu educational opportunity, it is an economic imperative in a country where too many employers cannot grow without the workforce that they need. So we're really excited about the national prospects for this concept, potentially as a new way of financing higher ed that could be available to every family across the country who income qualifies as a supplement or a complement to Pell Grant aid. And Heather, I wonder if there's any parting thoughts you'd like to share with legislators and staff around the country if they want to get involved in this issue, and particularly if this federal legislation comes through. Absolutely. You know, we cannot stand by as college education becomes out of reach for middle and low income students. And we really can't accept the status quo in which attending college or additional training after high school means taking on tens of thousands of dollars in student debt. You know, I believe strongly that Earn to Learn is part of the solution when it comes to helping more students, you know, not only pursue their choice of education after high school, but also graduate with little or no debt. 
So adoption of this Earn to Learn Act as a national level would be a game changer for hundreds, if not thousands, of, deserve, of deserving students. And I'm excited to see this advance across the country. Well, Heather and Kate, thank you both for walking us through this. I know this is a program a lot of people are going to be interested in, and we'll share in the show notes some links to more information about it. Thanks to both of you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you so much. I've been talking about approaches to college affordability with Andrew Smalley from NCSL, Kate Hoffman, the CEO and founder of Earn to Learn, and Heather Carter, a former Arizona legislator who is now executive director of the Greater Phoenix Leadership. We also want to thank the Stand Together Trust for its support of this episode. Thanks for listening. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Tim Story, NCSL's CEO, hosts Legislatures, the Inside Story, where he focuses on leadership and legislatures. The Our American States podcast dives into some of the most challenging public policy issues facing legislators. On Across the Aisle, host Kelly Griffin tells stories of bipartisanship. Also check out our special series, Building Democracy on the History of Legislatures.